Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why in how people buy. This is your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for letting me your ears. And if you're watching this on video, thank you for letting me those eyeballs as well. Now, I got a cool guest from across the pond. Now, I came across this guy quite accidentally. And somebody had listed him as one of those guys you have to talk to in sales. So I said, who is this? I looked him up. I looked at his background. I looked at his website. I go, I think I want to talk to this guy. So please help me welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, Gavin Ingham. How are you doing today? Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Pleasure. So Gavin, let these folks know on the Sales Influence Podcast who you are and just a little background. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been a speaker for 20 years now, uh, speaking all around the world. I speak on high performance primarily. Probably about 70% of my clients are sales-based, 30% are leaders. And in essence, I help people get the edge, Victor, looking at the, the, I like to think, the bit between motivation and sales. Mm-hmm. That little slice right in between. And so so let, we're going to talk high performance because, you know, you know, what have you found so far? You've worked with a lot of leaders and then obviously a lot of salespeople. Let, let's go to the leadership side first. Let's talk about what do you see when you when you come across a high-performance leader? You go, ah, oh, this person has it. What are some of those characteristics, those habits, those daily things that they do to make them that good? It's a great question. And I think people want to try and bottle that up, don't they, and put it into their book, you know, whatever that book is. And I'm going to be careful I don't use any titles because it might sound like I'm I'm having a pop at someone and I'm not. But this is what all the leaders I know do. And then someone else writes, this is what all the leaders I know do. And I, I'm not convinced you can pick, clearly there are habits, which they all have, but I'm not convinced you can pick specific habits. I think the point is it's working out the high performance habits that work for you. So it, it's a bit of a non-answer, but my answer would be they're the people who do their own high performance habits consistently. And that's the big thing that stands out for me. I think high performance leaders are consistent in, in what they do. You know what you're getting and you get it every time, not just when things are going well. Or when, or not when things are going badly. So let me put you on the spot because that that was kind of a cop out answer. It's a good answer, but it's a cop out answer. I'm gonna push you deep, okay? So what does Gavin do to be high performance? Like, what are some of the things that you say? You know what? These are some of the things I need to do consistently. This is my thought process. Give me some of what's going on in that head. Sure. So for me. The big question across everything, and it uh, stemmed actually, it was a question I'd always used, but it it, it, I, it really dragged home for me when I read uh, Gary Keller's book, The One Thing. And he talks about what is the one thing that um, really will differentiate you and make you stand out. And for me, it's breaking it down to that one thing in each core area. So for example, with my kids, it's, well, what is the one thing that I need to do every day that makes the most difference? And for me, it's sitting down for dinner and having a family dinner and chatting. Um, what is the one thing around marketing? And interestingly, that one's changed recently for me, but but it always was historically, it was to get my newsletter out consistently to my clients, adding massive value all of the time. So the one question I ask myself on a daily basis is, you know, what do I need to do today? How do I add value for my clients today? And and that value thing for me is the, is the critical piece. I go right the way back to 20 years ago when I first started, and uh, I know you were in the market then, and people were saying, pre-blogging really, pre-newsletters. And I had a newsletter and a blog. And there were people in our market coming to me saying things like, why do you give away so much stuff? And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe it. You're giving away 
Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Now everybody gets it, right? I mean, everybody's like, oh, give everything away. But back in those days, it was like, I can't believe you wrote an article or a, or a blog post or something. And it, it made me so much ground then. It's constantly got me thinking, how do I value? How do I do that? And and so consistently for me, what are the consistent things I do? Um, I exercise every day. That's one for me personally. I spend time with my children every day and my wife, obviously. Um I um, I do some meditation every day, a little bit of mindfulness for about 10, 15 minutes. From a work perspective, I do some prospecting every day um, and that changes depending on where I'm putting the energy. And I put out material that adds value for my client base every single day. They're the key things for me. Let's 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 go into all three. You, you said three things I really I, I really like already. By the way, I'm so with you on the, uh, why are you giving it away for free, right? <laughs> They just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. Oh, so late. I, I probably had a three to four year um, advantage ahead of everybody where my database was just going like that because no one else was doing it. I was like, this is, I was so sad when everybody else started doing it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, by the way, so you said uh, three things the massive value, mindfulness, and the prospecting piece as far as your high leverage activities. So, you know, how do you know? It's kind of an odd question, but maybe you'll be able to add some flavor to it. How do you know when you're adding, you know, in your newsletter, how do you know when you're adding value to your customer? You know, you know, you know peel that back, you know, open that up a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, it's, it's, it's a really good question. And there, there, there are several pieces to that, um, I think. And I, I, the first one is something I was talking about this morning with uh, a bunch of CEOs, actually. And that was around, I think you need to be speaking to a very particular person all of the time. And I think what happens a lot of the time is people look at people in our industry and they see the really big players, like they see the Anthony Robbinses and the Brian Traces and the Zig Ziglars, people who can literally talk to anybody and reach everybody and it doesn't matter. But actually that's not representative of most people and most businesses. You need to be speaking to a very specific individual. And as I look at my career over the last 20 years in this industry, as my fees have gone up and as the value I've added has gone up, that has been directly attached to me narrowing down and then narrowing down again and narrowing down again the person that I'm speaking to. And I think if you know who that person is in detail, you just know what value you can add because you know what's keeping them up at night, you know what they're moaning about, you know what they're grumbling about, you know what what's situations they're stuck in. You know what they think about the current economic situation. Uh, you know what they think about their sales teams or their high performers or the challenges or whatever. And therefore, you can add value because you're constantly thinking about it from their perspective. And I think every time I look at it and go, well, how do I add more value? It's usually about narrowing in massively on those individuals and thinking about what adds value for them. And that's plus the fact that obviously they are the people I'm speaking to on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's very much asking questions and listening to answers and then following up with more questions. I mean, this is good old sales of 101, isn't it really? But so many people listen to a bit of an answer and go, well, I've got it. Um, whereas I will always go that little bit deeper with my clients to truly understand not just what they're doing and what's keeping them awake, but what the motivations are behind that and what the emotion is behind that, because it's that that will help me to add that value through the messages and through the blogs and through the videos and conversations and that sort of thing. Do, do you feel that when you're talking to like leaders, for example, and just maybe have one in your mind right now, some ideal client that you currently have. And when you're talking to them, you know, 
you understand the, the business side of it, but you also said something, the emotional side of it. You know, think of a current client you have now, name, withholding the name, of course, and just, you know, how did you help them? You know, like, like set, set up an example, like, Victor, here was this, his or her situation. Here's what they were going through. Here's kind of how I helped them guide them out of that. So it, it is different in probably the leadership side to the more sales and the high performance team side. So I'm glad you separated those out, actually, Victor. I find that a lot of leaders know what to do. So they have the, the knowledge, they have the processes, they've got most of the stuff in play. And when you go and you talk to somebody, oftentimes what will happen is if you were to just say, well, here's, here's a solution, they'll often say, well, I tried that, Gavin. I, I tried that, Victor. It, it didn't work. And then you get into the whole, when did you try it? Why did you try it? You know, what happened? And it just becomes uh, an, an analysis of something that didn't work some time ago, but doesn't get you any closer um, to a solution. So w- what I find is that really digging down into exactly the emotions that they have and what they want to achieve and their drivers for all of that first gives you a clarity around that. So um, I've, I've also found, and then this comes up time and time again, that often what's holding people back is a combination of things. So it's often not, uh, and I had no intentions of talking about this, by the way, um, but it's often not um, about the business side at all. So generally speaking, I find most people are motivated by three or four things. There's three or four big players in their life. I've already really mentioned the big three or all four, depending on how you look at it. And obviously they're the business and the finance, they're the the health and the fitness, they're the um, you know, the family and the relationships. And then there some people separate out the separate out the the significant other. And what I find a lot of time is that people just have got that all out of balance. So there'll be stuff that's throwing them out in one area, throwing them out in another area. So they're kind of trying to do work, but they're just not actually having the the personal stuff that they want. So you ask for an example, I'll give you a, a specific example. There's a director of a business that I'd spoken to his teams and some of their clients on, on several occasions. And he took me on about the third occasion, we did some work together for, for dinner and we sat down and we had dinner and he wore, he wore these, these bands that, that I, I give my clients. And, and we were just talking about it. And he said, um, I've just got this issue. And we, we got into talking about informally, you know, what was important to him in what order. And it came out that the most important thing to him were his children. And he's got a son and a daughter. And we got talking about them and what they do. And, you know, I mean, it's over dinner. So we've got all the time in the world. And he's telling me about it and how it makes him feel and his emotions and one thing or another. And I said, so if there was one thing that more than anything else, would give you joy and would make your son know that you're there for him, that if you did it consistently, and he said, yeah, making all of his football matches. So my next question was, so when was the last football match you attended? And he said, I've never attended a football match. And yeah, wow, (laughs) exactly, I know. And what we realised in that, conversation right there. And as I say, I've had it reflected so many times is that just his his values and what was important to him in his life was out of whack. So he's been driving fully on on this work thing, but the other stuff is getting in the way and affecting his emotion, which is changing his behaviors in the moment. So in this thing, it's getting helping people get clarity um, on what they really truly want. 
and then giving them the path and helping them work out the path to get on that path and then helping them create that consistency. I actually talk about high performance as three core building blocks. So the first one is conviction. Um, and that's something that you and I, and I think all speakers, trainers, coaches, consultants, experts, whatever we are, that's something we try and pass to people is help them have that conviction in a nutshell that they can, but around the business, around the life, around where they're going, where they've been, etc. Then it's the clarity. Um, and obviously that clarity of what should I do? What shouldn't I do? When should I do it? When shouldn't I do it? Is really critical because if you've got the conviction, that's great, but it's got to be attached to an action. Otherwise, you're just a motivated idiot, right? And nobody wants a motivated idiot. We need specific things that you can drive those behaviors into. And then the final piece, which is consistency, and that's consistency of delivery on those things. And actually, although my personal love is the the conviction, the motivation, the being a 10, it's right there in the stuff that I talk about. Um, and I think the clarity is critical. Probably the piece that makes the most difference is the consistency. So it's helping people to consistently do what they need to do. Um, I, you know, I think if you were looking at a true high performer and you were trying to nail me down on it right at the start, it's what are those things that they do consistently? Because when you look at people who are nearly men or nearly women, whether that's in sales or leadership, it's that chronic inconsistency that just stops it happening, isn't it? So you could take any one of anybody I've worked with that you've got those results and it's in helping them get and keep that conviction, get that clarity, and then work out what they need to be doing and making it happen I, I love that framework, uh, but I want you to finish the story, though, because it's a great story so far, is that, is that so you're having this conversation, and everything you said about clarity, conviction, and consistency, got it, love it. The But go back to that story, because I, I kind of want you to finish that story. It's a great story, because it's sometimes it's, you're highlighting something that a lot of people don't talk about, that sometimes it's not the big things. Do you know what I mean? It's some mental breaks that we're tapping. And so when you had that conversation, you know, well, can you tell, share the rest of it? Is there more to that story? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, we booked um, a couple of sessions um, to, to just sit down and talk about it and, and, and work through it. And we went right way back to the start. So we looked at what was truly important in his life. We looked at um, what that would look like into the future, three years, five years, but actually doing it for the core areas. So looking at his fitness and health, looking at his family and relationships, looking at the obviously finance and the business and his relationship with his wife. Then we mapped those out, you know, through questioning and listening. He did 95% of the work. I just sat there and encouraged him, really. And then we broke that down into one years. And I mean, this is, you know, just straightforward coaching stuff. No, right see, away, wait, 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 to, then, the thing is, see, Gavin, you're so good at what you do. You take it for granted that what you do is very valuable. And so I want to just slow down because it's good stuff. And there's a lot of people listening go, I never looked at it that way because there's all these little aha moments you're just throwing in there like it's just knowledge for you. And so when you go going back to this individual, what did you do t from a tactical standpoint? I mean, did you say, hey, all right, you're going to attend one game a week, you know, and we're going to schedule like this? I mean, what did you do, like, you know, from a tangible perspective? So, no. So, no, we didn't We didn't do that. Um, it, it's interesting because I um, – it, it's just reminded me of a, a conversation I had a, lo a, long, a long while ago with Brian Tracy, actually, which is still online somewhere. And Brian, uh, Brian asked me the question, what is it that you do? Or, no, how is it you add value? 
And I sort of said, well, that isn't, I'm British, that isn't really for me to say, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> value is always determined by the other person and you'd have to ask somebody else. But what I try to do is this, and Brian, uh, being uh, more of the American persuasion, I guess, went, well, see, what I'm hearing is I think what you do is this, 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 and this. And I went, well, that's very good. And thanks, because you said it, not me. So that's great. Um, but the but the point being, yeah, so what I, it's very much a coaching approach for me. So it's looking out to that point, which is often about three years. Um, I mean, it can be five years, it could be less, but I found with leaders, it's often around three years. Where do you want to be in those core areas that are really, really important to you? And as I say, sometimes they are different, but usually it's those three or four things. The, the, I, I wanted to highlight something because, you know, in, t in today's market, in today's world, what I'm seeing is that managers are really struggling to manage their teams because of all the work, you know, their pressure from above, pressure from the sides, and, you know, obviously managing people below them. And so coaching is becoming, I think, a, the newest differentiator when it comes to high performance, which is why I'm pushing you to go deeper in this one, by the way, in this direction. And so you set out a three-year plan for these leaders, right? But again, tell me what that looks like. Tell me what a coaching session like Gavin looks like. So I go, oh, I, want, I, want, I want this guy to coach me. I, I want to feel what that feels like. So, all right, Victor, here's what we're going to do. You know, month number one, month number, you know, whatever you do. I mean, share the magic. First thing is, yeah, so the first thing, and I think this is really important, that the first thing is that the three years isn't a goal. Um, so the three years is a dream, really. What you want people to do is get in touch with what truly lights them up, um, what truly excites them. So when I'm working with somebody, and, and funnily enough, I used exactly the same process in interviews, by the way. It's a little bit more difficult in interviews because people aren't expecting to be lit up and they're not expecting to get in touch with their emotions. But if I can't help them find them, and it's the same way with coaching, if I've got someone on their three-year plan, uh, their three-year dream, their three-year vision, and they're not excited, then we're going to keep talking about it until they are. Because at the very least, it's got to, you know, for me, it's that that gets you up in the morning. It's that that keeps you up late at night. It's that that allows you to make the difficult decisions of going, I, I, I am having this conversation. I'm not having this conversation. I can skip that because I know where my mission is. I know where I'm getting joy from. I know the route I'm going on. So it's getting people to talk about it and flesh it out and tell that story of the future. And certainly um, moving on after that, I actually have a little morning exercise, which I teach leaders um, which involves this so that they're doing it on a daily basis and actually playing with it and having fun with it. That then backs down into a one-year goal. So I do take the difference. At that point, I do set goals. So at one year, specific, measurable goals that they can achieve, um, but based against this three-year dream. And I guess the difference is that the three-year dream is a journey. So it's more who you become on that journey because we accept that we might change that three-year goal. But the one-year goal is something we're going for. I then break that down into 90-day um, chunks, and that's broken down into specific activities. And that's where the one thing question comes in. And often we don't get down to one thing. I will allow people to have up to three for each one, but we're trying to get to that one that, if you like, from the Lord of the Rings, the one thing you have to do that rules it all, you know? So what is the one thing? So for me, for example, around fitness, um, the, the, the three things, one is going out running, one is doing my calisthenics and one is eating healthily. They're the big three, right? Um, but the one that rules it all for me is the jogging. I wish mm -hmm. it wasn't. Yeah, that's, a, that's rough, <laughs> but it is, it is. But it is. When I, 
when I go jogging, the rest just falls together because that's the hard, as Brian again would say, that's the biggest chunk, right? So that's the, that's the big ugly frog. And when I bite into that one, as soon as I've done my run, then I tell you what, I'm going to eat healthily. Um, whereas I can focus on eating healthily, but it's much harder to do when I'm not doing the running. So all three are important. And actually I have a fourth, which is sleep as well. Um, but, but the big one for me, the one that really, really matters is, is, is the running. Okay. So, so. So, so I just want to bring you back. I, I, I'm going to keep wrangling you until I get what I want from you because I want something from you. I, I know it's in there and I want it badly. Back to my leader. I'm sitting here and yeah. I love what you said already about, you know, the first one is you got to find what motivates me, right? What gets me up in the morning, right? So I love that. Sure. So you're trying, to find, you got, you're trying to find me to press my own motivation button, like find a purpose, right? And so let's just look at 30 days. And so you got me to find my purpose. So I, I, I want to go see my kids' go- game, right? But I have a business to manage. I got these two things I have to deal with, you know. And but again, you know, I, I the pressure's here. I got to do this. This is what I want you to walk me through. Like, what do you do to people to help them really begin to make sense of it? Like a small thirty-day blueprint or something. I mean, what do you bring to the forefront? I don't know. You know, you know that's what I'm trying to get from you. Like. Put me in that. Put me in that therapy session, man. Put me in that therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's asking you to prioritize those and explain how they fit together and how that works together. You've already got this vision of three years out. You've broken this down to a set of goals, which take you part way towards that 80 year out, then you've broken it down to 90 days. At 90 days, you're talking about activities and looking at what those activities are. What we will then literally do is I would then talk about um, the difference between um, things that you want to do, i.e. techniques and, and habits, things that you own that you just do anyway. I'll often talk about the importance of willpower and how willpower does so work t- again, and doesn't Gavin, work. T- tie it back to this. I'm in this session with the guy. Okay, I'm in this session yeah. with the guy. And I'm having a conflict. Walk me through how you can help me. I know, you know I, 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 I get all the big stuff. I get the three-year goal. I get the 90-day plan. But, you know, what do I walk out of there with? And do I meet with you every week or two to kind of reset my brain? Do you know what I mean? I think my listeners are going to say, okay, but what does he do? So what does he do in there? Because if he does what I think he does, I want to hire him. So I'm trying to get you more business, actually. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so put, put me in there. Tell me what I'm going to walk out of there. I, I have a couple of sessions with you. Well, 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 well interestingly, um, there's, there's, there's two elements here because for, for me, it's, it's working out what are those specific activities you need to do on a daily basis um, and breaking those down and creating uh, a pattern. And one of the reasons I shy away slightly from saying this is what the structure would look like is because I've got one leader that I work with who is highly process-driven. So I ask him the questions and we start to put it back together. And then he comes back to me afterwards with an Excel spreadsheet with multiple colors on it of exactly how and when he's going to do things every week. So then what we do is we meet back weekly, only quickly. We meet once a month properly, but once a week to just say, all right, tell me how you've done against these specific things. Tell me what's working. Tell me about your wins. Tell me about your learns. Tell me what you need to change to do better next week. It's a 10-minute session. takes no time, but it's just there to have that check. On the other hand, I've got um, big picture leaders, and that would just give them a headache 
I mean, literally would roll them over and see them go to an early grave. So what they need is a really simple um, one, two, three. And I, I'm more like that. So so I get up in the morning and I go, right, first hour is on this, second hour is on that, third hour is on that. And what I want people to acknowledge is that they need those pieces in there that are critically, critically important. One of the exercises I I, I, I run, and it's a slightly different coaching session, this one. So you said yeah. it was all right if mm-hmm. we go down a few rabbit holes. But one of the other sessions that I use is uses more of a feed-forward thing. So in that scenario, we'd be chunking it down even more. So this might not be, uh, this could be a leader who has recognized they've got one issue. So for example, if I were to improve my communication skills with my team, then everything else would change. And that's down to the, what is the one thing that if you were to change it, it would change it all. And in that scenario, I would also use feed forward from their staff. So I would have them going back to their peers, the people below them and the people above them saying, look, this is what I'm working on. Have I done this month? What advice have you got for me? What do I need to focus on next month? And then I would sit down with them with that specific feedback and help them to implement that in the following month. So there are two there are two different kind of approaches that I take to this depending on the exact scenario that, and the exact That's situation. what I was looking for, my man. That's what I was looking for. Because what one is you let them go off and come back with what they think the plan should be for that type of personality. And then the other one as you said you you dig into one thing, you chunk it down to one thing and then use the the was it feedback? I forgot the phrase. Feedback Feed forward. Feed forward. And, and so yeah. I love that because I've seen that exercise done. I think it's a very powerful exercise. So I really love that, man. So anyway, thank you for that. I knew, I knew I'd get my answer from you, Gavin. I knew I'd get my answer. But, you know, the, the reason I push hard is because I think that, that, that gives it makes it very tangible. People can see that in their head, and I'm very visual. The other thing you said I thought was interesting is that you do, you, you do some mindfulness, you know, exercises in the morning. Talk to me about uh, the reason, you know, how that came about. You know, when did you start doing it? You know, why did you start doing it? And how has it helped you? It's great. Uh, great question. I, I, sorry, a long, long time ago is the answer, actually. Um, gosh, yeah, probably 30 years ago. And I, I was quite into martial arts at the time. And I was doing, I'd done a bit of karate and I'd done a bit of Aikido and I was doing some Wing Chun. And don't know why, <laughs> can't remember, was reading Combat Magazine, I think, and I read something about a guy called uh, Dan Doherty. And Dan Doherty uh, is a Tai Chi teacher. And when you think of Tai Chi, yeah, you think... Movements. <laughs> By the way, if, if you're listening to us on audio, we're just flapping our arms like we're doing some Tai Chi. <laughs> yeah, we are flapping our arms around like a couple of cranes. Yeah. And... Uh, I went along to a couple of lessons uh, with him in central London and really enjoyed it. And unfortunately, uh, my work situation changed and I was unable to attend any further um, lessons with him, which was a real shame. And um, But I carried on doing some of the exercises for a little while. And one of the things I found was that actually just standing on the roof of my flat in, in Hammersmith in central London doing these exercises... I probably was doing them all wrong by this point, uh, but it, it just gave me this sense of, I, I, I feel a kind of a clarity. And I think for me, I'm one of these people who's who has millions of ideas. I, I like to call myself creative. Um, that's probably the decent version of what it is. You could also probably call me uh, 
mad, you know, I don't know, but I, I have lots and lots of ideas. And one of the hardest things for me to do is quiet my brain. Um, because when I try and quiet my brain, I, I get more ideas. Um, <laughs> just I'm pouring in and, and, and it makes it very, very difficult, um, to focus. I mean, I think particularly if you're passionate about what you do and you're passionate about learning, which I am. And so I also, I'm investing all of the time in, you know, I do loads of courses from people. I read books. I probably read a couple of books a week. I listen to podcasts. I watch videos. I, I, you know, so I'm constantly having this new ideas, new ideas, new ideas. And I think I'm quite good at sifting through them and working out, but there's always so much to sift through. And of course you keep therefore having good ideas, but you know, if you will take this and this and this, then you create something a little bit special. That would be great, but it doesn't necessarily fit in alignment with where I'm going and what I'm doing. So I have to keep myself on track. And I found one way of doing that is quieting my mind, but, but how to do that. And so I say, I then tried numerous things. I, I tried things like, uh, Pilates hated it. I tried yoga, couldn't do it. Um, I went back and tried Tai Chi but it always felt not as good as Dan. And I just couldn't get back to Dan's because most Tai Chi, as we said, is this. And Dan actually fought with it as well. And as a young sort of 20-odd-year-old, I like the idea um, that if someone assaulted me in the street, I could just do a bit of wushu, wushu, and they'd go flying off miles into this guy. Clearly, I can't do that. But, but I like the idea of that. So I didn't particularly enjoy any of the other Tai Chi lessons. And somewhere along the, along the way, um, I realized that I liked the breathing exercises and some of the results that were coming out of um, yoga uh, and Pilates to an extent. And I came across mindfulness. Um, and I've just been doing it sort of 10, 15 minutes a day ever since. Um, it's not one of those things that you have an instant, or I didn't have an instant aha, but I think over time I have got to the point where I can sit and do it. And I think where it's also made a difference and you're going to go, that's a bit weird, but I do all of the cooking in my house and I used to, as a busy chap, find it really frustrating cutting and peeling vegetables. Uh, it just seems like a waste of life really. Um, and now I just, I kind of go into state. my... Go into this state. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I, I do. And I, I, I almost enjoy it, which is weird. Um, but, I, but, it, but it's funny because I look back and I go, the only thing that I've ever done that has a similar impact on me is fishing. And I remember when I used to go fishing as a child and as a teenager, you'd be watching that float bobbing. And when I go to bed that night, I wouldn't think about work. I wouldn't think about school. All I would see is that float bobbing. So it's trying to get that same just, empty focus on nothing because I find that a lot of my great ideas and a lot of my clarity comes from clearing and then clarity. So a very long explanation. No, no, it's a good explanation. I, I mean, I have uh, one of the things that actually puts me into that Zen state, which uh, is, is mowing the lawn. Can't explain it. It just quiets the mind. It's because it's a non-thinking place. It just quiets the mind. And I, th and I think a lot of people are struggling because they don't have the time to kind of stop and just try to quiet the mechanisms, as you say. It's really hard to do, by the way. It's hard to do. The last thing I want to touch on before sure. we start wrapping this up, you, you talked about prospecting as, as, as one of those key things you should do. So let's, let's talk to the salespeople now so they don't feel neglected here. Uh, so, you know, talk to me about high-performance salespeople, and, but really touch on prospecting because, you know, if nothing's coming into the funnel, nothing's happening. Sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw, draw a little diagram. 
if, if I can find my pen, I've thrown my pen away before this call. What have I done with it? Oh no! Right, I'm not going to draw a little diagram. Anybody who's watching the screen, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to watch my hands. So, um, for many, sales is a roller coaster. It goes up and down and up and down like that. And I think, to a greater or lesser extent, we tend to just accept that. Um, and I speak to a lot of leaders, a lot of directors, and they just go, "That's the way it is." But when you look at what actually happens, it becomes clear that that's not the way it is. That is a function of how you put your effort in. So if you take one individual, one individual sitting out there now listening to this, I, I want them to think back to when they first started in their role. Hopefully they were highly motivated. They didn't nick all the old clients from their old business. So they're starting again. Once they've had their induction, there's only one thing they can do, and that's prospect, really, whether that's social media or networking or knocking on doors or cold calls. I'm not, I'm not particularly bothered about that at this stage, but they have to do prospecting. And they go out from what I call a 10 state, which is the best state, and they hammer it. And as they do, their sales start to go up. And as their sales start to come up, along with that comes a whole set of things, such as servicing clients, writing proposals, customer services. Uh, they get involved in the organization and meetings and water cooler chats and office politics and all that stuff. And somewhere, let's say that's that line there is average sales. Somewhere we're about here, they forget to do the very prospecting that created the issue in the foot that was creating business in the first place. Now, in most of the industries, I suspect that most people are listening to us. There is a sales cycle. Um, I'm assuming, you know, there will be people out there who knock on a door and make a sale. Um, and they don't have this problem for reasons which will become obvious. But for most of us, there's a sales cycle. So let's say your sales cycle is four weeks or six weeks. When you stop prospecting, your sales carry on going up because you've already done that work and set that train in that direction. And at some point, they'll top off and start to come down. And as they start to come down, you're still incredibly busy. And you go right the way down to somewhere nearly down near the bottom. And then they have that moment. And um, it's the SH1, the OSH1T moment where they realize I've not got any commission or they realize, um, you know, my sales are on the floor. I'm not on the leaderboard. Or some people, their manager has to come to them and, and hand them that moment. And at that point, they then go out and start prospecting, feeling rubbish and assuming they're not on the floor knowing their sales are going to carry on going down because of that very sales cycle. And then they repeat it over and over and over. Now, I believe the reason they repeat it is because of that sales cycle. Um, if anybody's aware of Pavlov's dogs, where the dogs eat and the bells rung, and eventually every time they're fed, eventually the dogs start salivating just at the ring of the bell because the two happen together. Now, the person who's knocking on the door, they get it because if they don't sell anything today, they don't eat tonight ergo, sell something tomorrow. But if you're on a six-week cycle and you've got uh, a guaranteed package underneath that as well, you don't feel it quite in the same way. The emotions and the, the situation and the work and the results are not in the same place. So even though logically you know it, emotionally and kind of physiologically, you don't get it. Therefore, you repeat the process over and over and over again. So for me, the critical piece for salespeople, and it comes back to this three-year plan thing in many ways, is what do you need to do on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that you've got the opportunities to get the results? Because you come back to what I said earlier on about narrowing down and perfect clients. That's all well and good as long as you've got people coming in the top. But what happens for a lot of people is they don't have people coming in from the top. So they have 10 prospects, two are possibly pop great clients. They take the two and do a deal. 
But then they're looking at their prospect list of eight and going, well, I've still got eight. But actually, no, you, you did the two. You've got none, really. You've just got a runaround until you realize you've got a runaround and then you'll go and start again. So the point being that you actually need those opportunities um, to be able to do all the other bits of selling that the likes of you and I will tell people to do properly. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. If you're desperate, if you're a two, if you're a three, it's really hard to say to a client, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Client, this isn't going to work out right now. Um, can I refer you to someone else? Or uh, ask that, listen, Mr. Client, you know, and stand, stand on your feet or whatever it is. And the problem is that people just don't do that. So for me, consistent prospecting is the critical piece that allows so, salespeople so what do you to think, do what and they I do. love the explanation because I, I think you're talking about when you talk about that operant conditioning, right? The immediate feedback is there when you knock on the door. Uh, but when you're in the sales cycle and all the other things have to come into play, it takes away from your time. To, to wrap this up, what, what do you think is the key thing that holds a lot of salespeople back? We, we talked about consistency, so we, we know that's part of the pro problem, right? But is there something you think uh, beyond consistency and conviction and clarification that sometimes holds people back? I see people who, who I always say have the skill, the will, and maybe even the mindset's in the right place. But it's like something's always pulling them back, the fear of something. You know, what are your thoughts on, I don't know, what drives them, what doesn't drive them? What have you come across? Well, if I hadn't right. said what I'd have already said, uh, my answer would be... I think that's a big one. I think you're right. I mean, I think you nailed it on that one right, right off the gate. Because I, I, think, I think people don't allow for the external stuff that gets in the way. So they think that they can, with, as you said, with motivation and knowledge, they think they can drive that consistent behavior, but they don't allow for the stuff that goes wrong. So I think that's a big one. Uh, but, but if we had to do another one, um, I, I think probably beliefs. So for me, it's about what people believe about their situation, about society, about their products, about what's possible, uh, about the marketplace at any one particular time. If I look back to, and conviction, consistency and clarity are in play always, but if I look at the leaps that I personally have made and the ones I can track in either teams or leaders, um, where there's been a significant leap that doesn't lie in with the, the normal leap. And that could be in performance or it could be in sales or it could be in the balance of their life. And and that always comes down to a big shift in belief. I love that belief. answer because I think, you know, the conviction I think is, I get it, conviction, I'm going to do that. But there's that belief structure that underlines all three of those columns that you put up, right? Your, your belief system. And I think I just wanted to highlight that. That was a good point. Anyway, Gavin, you are awesome. Let them know where they can find out more about you, my friend. Yeah, for sure. The, the simplest way to get uh, find out more about what I do, watch videos, etc., is on iam10.com, which is www.iam10.com. By the way, what is IAM10? I saw that and I go, what is that? What? Give me, give me the quick snippet on that. What is that? Yeah, for sure. So um, I've asked about two hundred fifty thousand. Approximately. People, um, <laughs> yeah, approximately. What differentiates high performers? And they tell you motivated, enthusiastic, determined, tenacious, whatever. And then you go, so are they attitudes or skills? And people go, attitudes. And I go, what kind of percentage? And they go, 100%. And I go, that's nonsense, because that'd make you a motivated idiot. you know. But clearly, it's 80, 20, or 70, 30, or whatever. But the key thing is this. Attitude is your ability to access your skill. And your skill determines your results. But then most people are motivated from the outside in. So they allow those results, those people, those circumstances to affect the way they feel. So when they're doing well, they do better. But when they're doing badly, they do worse because you get into that downward cycle or that upward cycle. When you look at top performers, 
top performers are motivated from the inside out. So they are the ones who can take control no matter what's going on, no matter with what with the economy or the circumstances or the business. And I like to measure that attitude on a scale of one to 10, where one is the most inappropriate attitude and 10 is the best attitude. And my argument would be that to deliver you're, now, you're so, you have to be a 10. Eight, nine, seven, not good enough. I'll just say, you're, you're, so, you're so British, man. You're the one being inappropriate. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Most people say one being bad. No, it's inappropriate. That's inappropriate, Victor. Anyway, Gavin, thank you for being on the Sales Influence Podcast. And that is it for the Sales Influence Podcast. Leave me some feedback at iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Pandora, wherever you find me. Also, when you get a chance, check out the Sales Velocity Academy at salesvelocityacademy.com. Lastly, this is Victor Antonio signing off, always saying, selling ain't hard. When you know how, take care. We're good. <laughs> you cracked me up on I enjoyed that. Good. I love that, man. I love that. I can't